I invite you just to repeat these words after, after me. Lord Jesus, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your beautiful name. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a young man who's troubled by a red lizard that always sits on his shoulder. Uh, This red lizard is an analogy in that book for some besetting sin, things that he and we sometimes cannot seem to be rid of. At the same moment, the red lizard attracts us and tells us about the good and tantalizing things in this world, and then turns around and mocks us after we indulge in these things, saying, that really didn't satisfy, did it? Well, one day in the book, an angel comes to the young man and promises him he can get rid of the red lizard. The man is thrilled that he can get rid of this thing for the rest of his life, but he wonders how. And then he begins to discern the answer as the angel begins to glow red hot. And suddenly the young man recognizes that what the angel intends to do is to kill the red lizard. He gets afraid at that point. He begins to wonder, what would life be like without it? He says, maybe we should do this on another day. You don't have to kill it, do you? And the angel responds, this is the moment of all moments. You must decide. How'd you like to get rid of your red lizard? Today I'd like to talk to you about a lizard that sits on our shoulders uh, called greed and materialism. In Ephesians chapter 4, we looked at the characteristics of the old humanity and the new humanity. And really, it was an overview of those key characteristics. Today, I want to dive deeper into just one of those characteristics, the characteristic of generosity. What would it look like to put off greed and to put on generosity? Now, before we get into the text of Ephesians, let me just say I am so excited about what God is doing through Millington Baptist Church and what he wants to do this year and in the coming years. As one of your pastors, I am praying for you, and I want what's, what God has for you and what God's best for your life. One of the things that God has been impressing on me this year is that he wants me to challenge you in your faith, particularly in the area of trust in terms of your giving. Now, it's funny. Sometimes pastors get kind of apologetic when they talk about this subject. It's kind of like, well, I'm sorry we have to cover this today, almost like we're embarrassed about it. In fact, some of you, maybe you're visiting for the first time this morning, and you're on your phone right now surfing around for other churches in this area that you'd probably prefer to go to uh, next week. But any church that really believes in the Bible will talk about this from time to time, uh, because to ignore the subject of stewardship is to ignore large portions of the Bible. Our Lord Jesus talked more about money than he did about faith and prayer combined. And so in the spirit of Jesus, I would like to just challenge you 
The reason why he talked about, though, is not because he was concerned about money. He talks about money because he was concerned about people. And he's concerned about our hearts. And there's a connection there. That's why he says in Matthew 6, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus knows nothing can steal away my affections and my heart for him like my money. And so in the spirit of Jesus, I want to challenge you in the area of stewardship. Not because we need your money, but because as a pastor, I'm concerned about your heart. Here's my thesis for this morning. It is impossible to become a mature Christian without also becoming a generous steward of your financial resources. It is impossible to become a mature Christian without also becoming a mature steward of your financial resources. In other words, I've never met a maturing, developing follower of Christ who was not also a mature giver. Here's the sad thing about this. If George Barna is right, evangelical churches are filled with people and families who aren't really maturing in this area, and I'm deeply concerned about that. Not because of the money. God is going to provide the money. He's always faithful but I'm deeply concerned about your heart. And I want God to be the center. That's where he belongs. So let's be reminded again of Ephesians chapter four and take a look at what this passage says again about this topic. Look at chapter four and verse 17 again. The apostle Paul says this. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. They are full of greed. Now, here is my working definition of greed that I just wrote just for this sermon. It's not perfect, but here's how I would define the the subject of greed. Greed is an inordinate desire or dependence on money or material things to produce four things. One, success. Two, significance. Three, satisfaction. Four, security. As soon as the topic of greed comes up or materialism, immediately we tend to think, oh, Pastor Dave, that doesn't apply to me. I got problems, man, but greed, that's not one of them. Materialism, and that may be true, but can I just ask you to consider and challenge you and ask you, are you sure? Because we live in one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world. If you live here, you're rich, period. Uh, But second of all, the Bible teaches us Something very interesting about this sin of greed or materialism in that it also hides itself. It's very unique in that way. We become blind to it. It's not like other sins that are a lot more obvious. Like if you're committing the sin of adultery, you're probably not unaware, right? You're not like, oh, this is not my wife. No, no, no. You're probably very aware that you're committing that sin. (laughs) Greed is not like that. When Jesus talks about this issue in Luke chapter 12, he says this, watch out for greed. Be on your guard against that. In the passage of Matthew chapter 6, when he discusses the subject of money and treasure and the part where he says you can't serve two masters, you can't serve both God and money, that's the part where Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, Jesus says there's this darkness that can come in with the issue of greed that blocks you from seeing clearly about it. The reason we don't see it clearly is, number one, we never feel like we have enough. I mean, no matter how much we get, it's never really satisfying, and so that kind of blinds us to it. And secondly, we always know somebody that makes a little bit more than us. 
And so we're like, well, look how much that person has. Well, you know, I'm certainly not, they're the, the one with the problem here. And all it takes is really just one person to have more than us for us to say, I don't struggle with this. But the rest of the world looks at us here in this part of uh, our world and says, you guys don't think that you're doing okay financially? How blind can you be? So if that's what you say, no, 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 I don't have a problem with this, that in and of itself is a very bad sign. Because you might be blind to its power over you, over you, and that's not good. Now, the reason why it has such power is listed in that definition, those four things right now, right there on the screen. Uh, it gives us a sense of success. My money is where I feel good about me. I, it, but, but if you read the scriptures, that's not how God defines success at all in terms of how much we have. In fact, God reserves some of the strongest words of rebuke to those who are rich, right? He says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to, to get into heaven. And, and, and he talks about how it can have a stronghold on a person's life. And you say, well, are you saying that having money is bad? Of course not. There's, there's many, many wealthy people in the Bible. I think about Abraham and the patriarchs, or I think about in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea. The, the fact that someone has money in and of itself is not really good or bad. Money is just a tool that can be used either way. Money itself doesn't have morals. Money doesn't make decisions about where it's going to go. Money, to me, it's kind of like a brick. I can take a brick and I can throw it through a window. Or I can take that same brick and use it to build a hospital or a homeless shelter. The brick doesn't really care. It's just a brick. But when you put it in a person's hands, they decide how they're going to use it. The same thing is true with money. Let's be honest. I have met rich people who are totally greedy and obnoxious. Have you? Raise your hand. Okay, you put your hands down. And I have met poor people who are totally greedy and obnoxious. Have you? Raise your hand. Yeah. And I have met some poor people who are some of the most godly people on the planet. Have you? Yeah, me too. And I've met some rich people that are absolutely incredible human beings and do neat things with their wealth for the kingdom of God and for others. Have you? See, the truth is, if you've got money and you're obnoxious, or if you don't have money and you're obnoxious, you're still obnoxious. <laughs> the difference is you, not the money. The question is, are you handling it in a way that, that honors God? That's the question. Secondly, money is sometimes where we find our significance. It's like a status thing. It's, it's how I feel good about myself. I might not admit it, but... I feel superior or better than others who don't have what I have. It's like if we're doing better financially, we feel like we're better than someone else. But that's not true. Thirdly, we think sometimes money gives us a, a sense of satisfaction. Well, one time John D. Rockefeller, the richest man in the world at the time, was asked, how much is enough? And he replied famously, just a little bit more. One of the most groundbreaking books I ever read on this topic was written by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. In that book, he describes the problem uh, this way. Promising fulfillment in money and things and lands and houses and cars and clothes and boats and campers and hot tubs and world travel, materialism has left us bound and gagged, pathetically thinking what the drug addict thinks, that our only hope is getting more of the same. 
All the while, the voice of God, so hard to hear through the clatter of our things, tells us that even if materialism did bring happiness in this life, which it clearly does not, it leaves us woefully unprepared for the next. That's one of the most life-changing books I've ever read. In fact, today, we've got a copy of that book for each family uh, here. Please take that as our gift to you. It will be a powerful tool in shaping how you steward uh, your treasure on this planet. So please take one of those on your way out. Let me go back to that definition. The, the fourth thing that sometimes money gives us is a sense of security. It's where we place our trust. It's where we find safety, and it makes us feel like we have control in an otherwise uncontrollable world. But, so God says, don't you realize, though, you can't control your life with money? It's me who controls all things. The issue here has to do with where I place my trust. That's what Proverbs chapter 18 says. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord there being the Lord himself. This is where God says I'm to find safety and security. He is my secure place I can hide from all of the assaults that life can throw at me. But some people find another place to hide. The text goes on to say a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Notice that last clause, in his imagination. It's deceptive. It doesn't offer real security from the real issues of life. Some of you know this. Some of you, you've been sick enough to realize all the money in the world will not offer you the comfort you really need. Wealth cannot do that. All the money in the world can't buy back your reputation. All the money in the world can't ease your load of relationship stress. Money can't heal loneliness or a broken relationship. Money can't bring comfort in a time of grief or sorrow. It's only in your imagination that wealth seems to be a hiding place. It isn't really substantial. Only when I transfer my trust from money to God will I find true safety and security. This is why Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, so he who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share generously with those who have need. I looked at that verse, and if you were here last week, I said, who here steals? And nobody raised their hand. But this week, I looked at that verse, and I thought, what, what if we looked at this verse not so much from the angle of stealing from another human being, but what if we looked at it from the angle of stealing from God? And it reminded me of a text in the Old Testament found in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3. Perhaps you're familiar with it. I'll put it up on the screen. Where God says to his people, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes 
and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. What a fascinating passage on so many levels. First of all, notice that the manner in which God calls us to return to him, when God says we've strayed away and he wants us to come back, he says, I want you to start by giving. The manner in which he says return to me, he doesn't say I want you to start by praying. I don't want you to start by reading the Bible. It's not that he says I want you to return to me by fasting or return to me by serving. He says, no, the fastest way to put me first place in your life again is to rearrange your giving. Because God has made us in such a way that our hearts are inextricably linked to our treasure. And God knows you care about what you invest in. That's why you care more about taking care of your own kids than the neighbor's kids. You care about the things that you invest in. It's just like a law of the universe. And God knows that. If you invest in a certain mutual fund, if you invest in a certain stock, what do you look for when the ticker tape goes across? What do you look for when you get your statement? What do you look for when you open up your app and you say, how's that? You look for the one that you've invested in because you care what you've invested in. You care about what you've, the investments that you, you, you've made. And so God is saying, I, I want your heart. That's why we talk about it. Listen, as your pastor, I want what's best for you. I want this to be your best year ever. I want God to fill you with joy like never before. I want you to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. But it is impossible to really cultivate a heart returning back to God without also addressing your giving. Notice again in that passage the word robbing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the only way it's possible for me to rob someone is to take something that's theirs, right? If I borrow a tool and uh, you come back to me and you want your tool back, well, it's rightfully yours. Here, the reason why God is saying they've robbed him is because they failed to understand that the money is actually rightfully his. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God were to give a tithe or 10% of their income, and God demanded the first fruits off the top, not the leftovers. And and sometimes we quibble about that, and we say, well, wasn't the tithe for those under the law, and aren't aren't we not under the law? But the answer is, if you read the Old Testament, you have people in the Old Testament who, who tithed long before the law was ever given, like Abraham. And if you read the New Testament in passages like Matthew 23, Jesus seems to affirm this principle of the tithe as well. And if you read the book of Acts... The New Testament church was characterized by a generosity that was much more radical uh, than tithing. In fact, the early days of Christianity, what really made us stand out, what characterized us as the followers of Jesus was our generosity. I love this quote. In fact, it's a famous quote written by uh, one of the Roman emperors in the early days of the church, the emperor Julian, and he wrote this letter to a colleague in utter frustration for the way the church was growing, and here's what he said. Their success lies in their charity to all. They take care of not only their own poor, but ours as well. This is what befuddled the world, our generosity, because of their experience with God's grace. So if we bring water to a a certain village in Senegal, we ought to be generous to the whole village, not just for the Christians. Because this is what marks us as followers of Christ. And this is what we're going to do there. 
Tim Keller says regarding the New Testament church, quote, since we are more indebted to God, more blessed by God, received more mercy from Christ than those folks ever did in the Old Testament, it's inconceivable to imagine that whatever God expects from us would be less than the 10%. Therefore, the Old Testament principle would would be a minimum. Some people say, well, I can't even imagine that. I'm barely getting by. I can't afford to do that. And there's certain seasons in your life where where I, I know where you're coming from, and this can be challenging. But I do want to challenge you that even in a difficult season, you should give something. And the reason is because you can't afford not to. In fact, look at the rest of that passage. God says, return to me in this way and put me to the test. Put me to the test. He says this, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you. I don't know what that is, but that's, I'm interested in that. So that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That's what you want. This is the only subject in the Bible where God invites us to test him. Test him. Test him. They say, Pastor Dave, are you teaching the prosperity gospel, the idea that we give to get and we'll be more rich? Of course not. I hope you know me better than that. The blessings in the Bible are not always necessarily limited to the financial realm. But I have noticed that the people I know and respect that have put God first place in this area of their life have found a true financial peace, have found a freedom from worry, have found a freedom from anxiety, and a place of God's blessing because they've given this over to God. And that's what I want for you. Incidentally, you know, some folks, especially in the millennial generation, have become very cynical about the church, and they've seen corruption over the years. And they tend to think, well, I don't know if that's really a safe place to invest, but maybe that's true. You've seen some televangelists getting exposed or something, uh, and that's very sad. But that's not us. We know we have to answer to the Lord Jesus here. We have very careful stewarding practices and auditing practices uh, here because we want God's continued blessing on our church. And so I promise you, this is good ground to sow in. Please don't misunderstand. It's not that God needs your money. He's wealthy. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God wants your heart, and he wants to be first. It's funny, sometimes in other areas of my life, I think nothing about my discretionary spending, like going to a ball game or, you know, going out to eat or, you know, spending on myself. But I think about giving the same exact amount to the church, and I'm like, wow, that seems like a lot. But some people, their expensive coffee habit makes up more of the budget in their month than they're they're giving to to their Lord Jesus. And that not ought be the case. Tim Keller says it this way, you always... Give effortlessly to that which is your real God. In other words, your money tells you where your heart really is. Now, some people cringe at this idea of a tithe. They say, wow, that's a lot. But the the truth is, God owns it all. 100% God says, I gave to you. It's all mine. I'm going to let you manage the 90%, though. Let's see how you do. That's actually a pretty good deal. Which is important because for some of us, we're we're faithful in our giving already, but we have to remember, uh, it's not just that 10% is God's and 90% is ours. It's it's really all of it is God's. 90% I keep, but he still expects me to be a good steward of the 90%. And I have to give an account for that. 
you know, I have a wallet, and inside the wallet are two credit cards. One is my personal Visa debit card, uh, which we use for our financial tra- transactions. We don't use a, a credit card. We live debt-free, and we're, we're thankful for that. The other card in my wallet is a church credit card. I am allowed to use that to spend on things only approved by you, the congregation, in the church budget for church-related expenses. Now, I notice this attitude I have as I reach for my wallet. When I take out my debit card, I'm a little bit more casual about using that one than I am when I take out the church credit card. A part of the reason is because I know Carol Hensley is going to look at all of my receipts very carefully, and I have to give an account. But the real reason I pause and become more careful is because I realize that's not my money. But you know what else is true? The money I'm spending by using my debit card is not my money either. And so the truth is, I need to be just as cautious no matter which card I'm using, because God owns it all. And so God calls us to be faithful with that which he's given us. There's a famous parable that Jesus tells about this in Matthew chapter 25. Let me just tell it to you. You've probably heard it before, but let me remind you. It's called the parable of the talents. A talent back then was a measure of money, or usually it was a measure of gold. Jesus tells us in verse 14, again, it, it meaning the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. Now, it's important you notice here, it says that the man entrusted his wealth to his servants. He's not giving these servants his wealth. He's not loaning it to them. He's entrusting it to them, and he's allowing them to manage something that belongs to him. I want you to manage my wealth, and therefore I expect you to do with my money exactly what I would do with my money. So, 15. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag, each according to his own ability. Now, when you read a parable, it's really important for you to look at it and ask this one question, where am I in the parable? Because you're in there. And another question that you want to ask when you read a parable is, where is God? in the parable because he's in there too. The text goes on to say, then he went on a journey. 16, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more, doing business for the master. He did pretty well, pretty impressive, right? Verse 17, so also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. He did very well also. Verse 18, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Uh Uh-oh. When I hear about this guy, I'm like, oh boy, I don't know what's going to happen, but it ain't going to be good for you, man. Then he goes on to say in verse 19, after a long time, after a long time. Now, when you read this in the Bible, what that really means is after a lifetime. After a lifetime, after you have lived your whole life, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The master's back. And the master has a question, and the question is, what did you do with what I gave you? 
You might even want to write that one down. What did you do with what I gave you? Man, that's a good question. Verse 20. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. He does what any good supervisor would do, what any good boss would do. You were faithful with a little bit of responsibility. Let me give you much more responsibility. The next guy comes in. He's excited too. Take a look at verse 22. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done. Good and faithful servant. Same exact commendation. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Again, this is very good. So far, so good. But now we come to that part in the movie where the eerie music gets cued, right? We remember that guy and what he did, and we know this is coming. The guy with one bag, 24. Then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man. Now, he didn't start with the same words as the other two guys. They all began with, Master, you entrusted me. Remember that? This guy somehow lost sight of the fact that he'd been entrusted with something to do something with, and instead he starts by actually pointing his finger in the Master's face. Before he talks about what he did or didn't do with the money, he points his finger at the master and he says, you know, this is all kind of your fault. Whoa. I knew that you're a hard man. He goes on to say, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I know what kind of person you are. And right there, right here is where he's wrong. Don't you see his view of God is wrong? Don't you see that's what the problem is? He views God as harsh, demanding, unfair, untrustworthy even maybe. And that's when we begin to get off track in this area. It starts with our view of God. Verse 25, so I was afraid. And that's the issue, isn't it? And this man says, so I was scared, and that's what you need to understand. It's your fault because of how you are, God. You scared me. And anybody in this situation would have done what I did because of how you are. And I was afraid. So I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to to you. Again, not here's what you entrusted to me, but here's what belongs to you. Exactly how you gave it to me. I didn't put it to work for the master at all. 26. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant, sometimes translated worthless servant. Those words seem really harsh, don't they? Those are not my words. They're not the words of Jonathan Edwards. 
Those are not the words of some fire and brimstone Baptist preacher. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. I cannot change them. This is his response. Notice, he's not upset because the man did something wrong. He's not upset because this man did something unethical or immoral or even illegal. He's upset because the man did nothing. So he says, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. And everybody in the audience listening to Jesus' parable is like, yeah, hello, at least, you know, do something with it. You know, this guy didn't even go to the bank and get the minimum percentage of return here. He invested nothing for the kingdom. The guy just dug a hole and buried it. I mean, how pathetic. The point is, he did not see this as something that was temporary and a stewardship for which he must give an account. He did not see this as something that he had been entrusted with that he would have to be faithful with. He missed the whole point of this little exercise, which means he missed the whole point of his life. So the master says in 28, so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. What do we learn from this teaching of the Lord Jesus? What do we learn from this parable? What is the point of this story? What we learn is that we have all been entrusted with certain resources from God. And he expects us to do business for him. He expects us to be faithful. And we will be held accountable. We will all say to God one day, God, here's what I did with what you gave me. Here's what you entrusted to me. Here's what I did with what you put in my hands. Here's what belongs to you. And God's standard of success for you in that moment and his standard of success for me in that moment is this, have you been faithful? Have you been faithful? Have you been faithful with what I entrusted to you? Not how much do you have compared to others? But have you been faithful with what I've given you? Because there's a sense in which I think we can all be tempted to do exactly what the guy did with the one bag of gold. Because sometimes life seems very unfair. I mean, it's like some people around us get five bags. Like, sheesh. And then other people around us, it seems like they get at least two bags. But look at me. I have one bag. And we begin to blame God for our lack of faithfulness Because we think, well, he only gave me one bag. What am I going to do with one bag? I mean, compared to this other guy over here with five or the guy over there who had two, you know, what am I supposed to do with one? And we resent what he has given us or not given us and we start getting mad at God. God, it's your fault. You're the one who stuck me with this job that I have. It's your fault. You're the one who gave me this amount of resources or finances. You're the one who gave me the talents that you gave me in life. This is kind of not my problem, but Jesus says when it comes to the end in my kingdom, that excuse won't fly. What you have been given is the issue. 
Not what you have compared to everybody else. Tune out what everybody else has. Tune out comparing yourself to someone else. Just focus on what am I going to do with what God has entrusted to me. So here's my challenge. What I'd like to challenge you to do is prayerfully go to the next level in your giving by asking yourself this question. Am I being faithful with what God has entrusted to me? Give God the opportunity to show himself strong in your life. I have tasted and seen that God is good in this area. And I'm not preaching prosperity theology, but I will say, you be faithful to God. He will be faithful to you. But you've got to put him first. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. Those four words are not just the creation story. They are a pattern of success in your life. In the beginning, God. That means God first, God first, God first, God first. And the reason is because there's so much more. There's so much more. God has more for your life. God has more for your Christian walk. God has more for your family. God has more for our church. There's more. There's more. There's more. Just this week, personally, personally this week, serving here as the pastor of Millington Baptist Church, I have been on my face in tears about what God is doing here. If you were here last Sunday and you watched those two baptisms, you saw how beautiful that was. If you were here last night at the Senegal dinner, hearing about our strategic partnership, hearing about the water project, hearing about all God is doing in Senegal, both of those moments this week, I'm watching that and my eyes are just filling up with these big old tears, these big old crocodile tears. And I'm sitting there going, man, why am I so emotional here? It's because God is at work. And like the psalmist, I say, look at what the Lord has done. It is marvelous in our eyes. And so I'm excited about Millington, especially in these next coming days. So let me challenge each of us to go to the next level in your giving. Some of you, you're not giving at all, and God is taking, taking you on a journey uh, to take a step of faith to begin to give for the first time financially. I would encourage you to do that. Some of you, you give, but you're a little bit more sporadic and a little bit more Uh, emotional in your giving, and God is calling you to give regularly and systematically because the scriptures say purpose in your heart that which you should give. Give systematically. Some of you, you already give systematically, and yet maybe God is stretching you to a new level of generosity as well. We never stop growing in the area of giving. The Bible says continue to grow in the grace of giving. Some of you perhaps are ready to put your church in your legacy plan, and you're about to give the biggest gift of your life. We never stop growing in the area of giving. Here's the real bottom line. The book of Ephesians says, be imitators of God. Here's what the Bible says about our God. When God so loved the world, he gave his very best. You are never more reflective of our God than when you are generous and when you give. Imitate him. You were made to reflect him. Let me finish that story about the red lizard. As he stood there with the angel, the young man finally decided to give the angel permission to destroy this red lizard. And he does. But if you read the book, you know the lizard doesn't just vanish. 
He transforms and turns into a beautiful stallion on which the man rides away. Instead of this man being controlled, he now, because of the power of God, is the one in control, experiencing true peace and true freedom. May you give God permission to destroy your red lizard, and may you ride off experiencing true freedom. Worship team, would you come? As they come, let me read you one of my favorite poems written by C.T. Studd. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. The still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life. T'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amen.